Hello, and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I'm Kylie Caldwell. I'm Kate Carter. And I'm Holly Spear. And I know some of you guys don't like unsolved cases. And just for that, I'm going to bring you two today. But I promise these ones, I think, have an answer. Um, So pack your bags. We're going on two cruises to solve the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley and George Allen Smith. All right. I don't like unsolved, but okay. I think... I think we can solve these. Okay. All right. I'm in. So Amy Lynn Bradley hailed from Virginia, and after graduating with a degree in physical education from Longwood University, her family decided to celebrate with a Caribbean cruise. So she went along with her parents, Ron and Iva, and her little brother, Brad. Amy actually had to be persuaded to go on the cruise because while she was very athletic and was a lifeguard, she was terrified of open water. Her mom was even quoted with saying she was reluctant about going up to the railing, but her dad and her brother, Brad, said, come up here, we'll hold on to you. The family of four boarded the Royal Caribbean Rhapsody of the Seas on San Juan, Puerto Rico on March 21st, 1998. So the first day on the cruise, the ship headed for a one-night stay in Aruba, where the family had a normal, typical fun night. The second day, when the ship was headed to Curacao, is when shit went down. Every morning, the onboard photographer on the ship would print out the photos he took the day before and he would put them on a board so all the passengers could see them, you know, pick out the pictures they liked and purchase them. Amy's mom noticed that on the board, there were no photos of any of her family members, even though they specifically remember posing for photos. Iva asked the photographer about the photos because she wanted to buy some. The photographer said he remembers printing the photos and putting them up, but he didn't know what happened to them. But... The family carried on, and that night they attended a formal dinner all dressed up, and they took plenty of photos themselves. It got a little weird because at dinner, the waiter, who I couldn't find the name of, but he apparently kept approaching the family's table and handing Amy notes, asking her to go out for a drink once they got on shore. A little suspicious. Suspicious. Notes. What I don't understand is, like, if you're the waiter, you're already talking to them. Like, why do you need a hand a note? Right. Like, there's no need for that. If I was in a group of people, no matter who I was with, and I was given a note, obviously I'm going to show them the note anyways. Yes. Was he doing it, like, so the the husband wouldn't see, or, like, slipping her a note or something? I don't know. It was her parents and her brother, so I don't, like, they would know if she was going out to get drinks with someone anyways. But after dinner, the Bradley family all went up to the upper deck for a little party. After dinner, the Bradley family all went up to the upper deck for a little party. And around 1 a.m., parents Ron and Iva decided to head back to bed, while Amy and Brad decided to stay up and party a little bit longer. Amy and Brad started drinking and dancing at the onboard nightclub called Mardi Gras, where they began to hang out with the crew band called Blue Orchid? Orchid. 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 I I don't know, that word in like orchard, I don't know. I was going to say, you were trying to think of or- orchard. Oh, wait, orchard. I just messed orchard. it up. Yeah. Orchid. Too, too close. Amy was seen in video dancing and drinking with one particular band member, Alistair Douglas, who went by Yellow, and who I will refer to as Mr. Piece of Shit number one. Oh, um, good. Okay. Using your detective skills, there will be several Mr. Pieces of Shit, but this is the first one. This isn't a ranking of them. Later on, Brad, Amy's brother, said, quote, she said that when they were dancing at the disco, he tried to, you know, dance a little too close, and she had to tell him to back off a little bit. 
At 3.35 a.m., the computerized door lock system recorded Brad entering the family cabin with Amy swiping her card to enter five minutes later. Brad said that the two sat out on the sweet balcony for a little bit talking, and then he went to bed, while Amy stayed up just a little bit longer. Now, I couldn't figure out, like, the actual layout of the room, like, if all four were staying in one room, or if there was a suite with multiple rooms, but we do know that the dad, Ron, could see the balcony from his bed. So sometime between 5.15 and 5.30 a.m., Ron woke up and saw Amy sleeping on the lounge chair on the balcony. He later said in an interview, quote, I could see Amy's legs from her hips down. I dozed back off to sleep. The balcony door was closed because if it hadn't been closed, I would have gotten up and closed it. So he just, so she was out there sleeping on the balcony. She's terrified (laughs) of water and he closed the balcony door and went back to bed. It was already closed. He said if it wasn't closed, he would have gotten up. I don't know. He just didn't want to wake her up or... Okay. Figure just it's obviously some type of family room where they can all have access to it. Ron woke up again at 6 a.m. with Amy no longer on the balcony. Her cigarettes and lighter were gone and the balcony door was open about 14 to 16 inches. By now, the ship was approaching the dock in Curacao and Ron began to walk around the ship looking for Amy. But because apparently she wasn't an early riser and it was uncharacteristic for her to be up so early. At 6.30 a.m., Ron woke up the rest of the family and told them Amy was missing, and the family reported her disappearance to security. With the ship now docked and passengers preparing to get off and spend the day in Curacao, the family pled with the crew to stop them from disembarking. But the crew said, hell no, saying it was too early to make an announcement and they would do a search of the ship themselves. So while this limited number of the crew knew about Amy being missing and fewer starting to search the ship, Brad ran into Alistair Douglas aka yellow aka mr piece of shit number one (laughs) and alistair allegedly told brad that he felt bad about what happened to amy brad later told reporters that was a really odd thing to say that early in the stage of this thing you know nobody knew except for my family and i and security that something may be wrong so yellow told Mm. them that he was sorry for what happened yeah but they hadn't made an announcement yet no and at this point it was just the family and security red flags Mm. red flags yeah so i mean he alistair was i guess technically part of the crew as a band member so i don't know if there was some like internal conversations going on with the crew but still it would be weird for the security like to let the band know yeah and that's just to like apologize yeah Yeah. yeah yeah i mean be like oh like sorry you can't find her any luck finding her or something like that but to be like sorry like as if something an accident already happened or whatever you know he already knew something was up but at 7 50 a.m the crew made a shipwide announcement saying quote will amy bradley please come to the purser's desk i don't know what a purser is but i didn't care to look it up but amy never showed up and get this the crew didn't actually start searching the ship until around 12 p.m so almost six hours after amy was reported missing and about five hours after they said they would start searching. The crew and security came back to the family saying they searched all 10 decks and 999 rooms with no sign of Amy or foul play anywhere. They also said that they were going to keep to their original cruise schedule and if the Bradley family needed more time to find Amy, they would need to get off the ship and stay in Curacao. Which make, that makes no sense. Yeah. No, if your daughter's missing on the ship... I guess you need to get off the ship and go look for her. I don't. That makes no sense because they weren't even in Curacao when they lost when she got when she was lost. 
No, I think with the time frame, they were kind of pulling into the port. And but by the time that they had reported Amy missing, like they hadn't even docked yet. I also so highly I'll... doubt they checked the whole boat. Spoiler alert, they didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think they searched 10 decks and 999 rooms in an hour. There's no way. There's no way. The Royal Caribbean cruise concluded that Amy must have fallen overboard or committed suicide. Um, the family knew that neither of these theories could be true because Amy was a happy girl celebrating her graduation and starting a new job. Additionally, at the time, Amy could have gone overboard between 5.30 a.m. and 6 a.m. The ship was just offshore. So even someone who wasn't as strong a swimmer as Amy was could have, they would have fallen off. They could have swam to shore like it was that close. So yeah. the Bradley family decided to stop and stay in Curacao where they got in contact with the American embassy who brought in the FBI to start an actual investigation. At this point, the Dutch Caribbean Coast Guard was also brought in to help with a four-day search. They used several helicopters and radar planes. And the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line did pitch in. Um, they chartered one single boat. Oh, that's nice. Wow. Props to you. them. So with no sign of Amy yet to be found, the FBI and the Bradley family decided to reboard the ship in St. Thomas to do their own search of the boat. The FBI soon realized that the crew did not, in fact, search the ship at all. Um, they only searched the common areas. That's what, and they think like they immediately went to the fact that she fell or jumped overboard. And then everybody in Curacao, like all the police and everything were searching there, but yet she could have been still on the boat. She could have been on the boat the entire time. Somewhere. Yeah. The entire time. The FBI also did what no one else did and started questioning people on board. So two passengers came forward to say on the morning of Amy's disappearance, they saw someone matching her description, taking an elevator up to the ship's deck with cigarettes and lighter in hand, which would match up with hers being missing from the balcony. Another passenger said around 6 a.m. that morning, quote, I saw Amy and the band member, Alistair, walk over and up to the next deck up above us. And about 10 minutes later, he came walking around by himself. Red flags. Red flags. Yeah. So... Obviously, all these red flags are pointing to Alistair, and he was brought in for a little questioning with the FBI. I don't know what they asked him or what he answered with, um, but he passed a polygraph and was deemed not a person of interest. Polygraphs don't matter. They don't matter. They do not matter, people. By this point, the ship was docking back in San Juan with no answers, and the Bradley family decided to fly back to Curacao for a bit longer before ultimately heading back home to Virginia with no answers. A few months went by with no progress until August of 1998, so this is about five months after Amy's disappearance, when a Canadian man flew to meet with the Bradley family with some information. So this man claimed to see Amy walking with two men on the beach in Curacao, and she was trying to get his attention. This man correctly identified two of Amy's visible tattoos, including a baby Tasmanian devil spinning a basketball on her shoulder blade and a Chinese symbol on her right ankle. So two pretty distinct tattoos. Amy actually has two other tattoos that aren't visible, you know, with regular clothes on. She has a tribal sun with a Chinese symbol on her lower back and a green and blue gecko around her belly button. Very 90s. And this guy mm -hmm. said that he saw these two tattoos on the beach back in Curacao? Yeah. So the Bradley family and the FBI took this pretty seriously. I guess he was pretty credible. And they went back to Curacao, searched again, but turned up with nothing. So over a year had passed without any information. So the Bra Bradley family decided to hire a private investigator. 
Um, they didn't go searching for one. One turned up in their emails. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the fall of 99, they began receiving emails from a Navy SEAL named Frank Jones, who had a team investigating Amy's disappearance. And he said he had some valuable intel. Bet he did. Oh, he did. He said Amy was being held captive in a complex surrounded by a barbed wire fence and guarded by a heavily armed Colombian cartel. He gave an accurate description of Amy in his email, and while on the phone with Amy's mom, he even sang a lullaby that she would sing to Amy as a child. I don't know, like, how what the lullaby was, if it was a common one that everyone sang to their children. What? That's so weird. Yeah, like, rockabye baby or something. Right. You know, it's like, okay. Which, I mean, I feel like this happens so much, you know, like, someone comes through the woodworks and contacts families of missing people and that they're gonna you know solicit sounds like a scam their services yeah which is like probably the families just want to believe whatever they say you know yeah and i'm sure her face is like everywhere too so the accurate description part is a little uh so for months frank would email updates and photos of locations where amy was spotted he sent photos of houses restaurants stores you name it frank claimed to have an informant on the island named judith Margarita, Margarita, Mm, who would send these photos to him back in the United States. So I'm going to show you some of these photos, which the family did post on their website, which you can check out at amybradleyismissing.com. So the first photo we have, it just looks like a gated neighborhood to me. Maybe barbed wire on the fence, but then there's like a guardhouse that says security. You know, it doesn't look like a Colombian cartel trap house to me. Oh, it looks like kind of like a hotel. And um, then we got a combination Pizza Hut KFC. Oh, and there's okay. people outside. Apparently, Judith told the family that she saw Amy eating pizza here. There's actually I can't even see any women in this photo. <laughs> Wait, isn't isn't she any- held captive? She can have pizza. That's a next photo I have is just a random neighborhood, yeah. and it looks like a different neighborhood than the first one she sent. But Judith claimed that Amy was being held captive and this neighborhood also. Again, there is no people in this photo. So while this was all going on, the Bradley family was paying Frank for his investigation. And when Frank said he needed more money in order to rescue Amy, they sent even more money. I understand they're desperate. Why would the Navy SEAL need payment? Because he ain't a Navy SEAL. They ended up wiring him a little over $200,000. But like you guessed, he was never any sort of military personnel. He had never been to Curacao or Columbia. He made up everything. Judith Margarita apparently is a real person, but she's also a scammer. And they were both charged with federal mail fraud charges and sentenced to five years in prison. That's so sad. Good. So that's Mr. Piece of Shit number two, Frank. And Judith. Frank and Judith. And there's a special place in hell. Yes, there is. And there's a combination Pizza Hut KFC there. Frank is not the last piece of shit or Judith. This one actually was in the military, though. So a U.S. Navy officer claimed to see Amy in a brothel in Curacao in January of 1999. This was nine months after she disappeared. And apparently she begged him for help. She said she was being held against her will and wasn't allowed to leave. But Mr. Piece of Shit number three did not report this to anyone until years later after he saw a magazine with Amy's photo and after he had retired from the Navy because he didn't want to get in trouble for being in a brothel. So by the time this Navy guy reported this, the brothel had actually been burned down. Oh. I'm not sure what year he actually reported this. I just know it was like years after he allegedly did see her. 
but the last possible sighting of Amy was in March of 2005 in Barbados, an island to the east famous for being the home of our dear Lord and Savior, Brianna. Brianna, we love you. I hope you're listening. listening. Yeah. Give us a shout out. We love you. So a woman named Judy Maurer was out shopping in a department store in Barbados when she claimed to have spoken to Amy. Judy said Amy was with three men who were threatening her to take some sort of deal. Judy said Amy approached her, saying her name was Amy and she was from Virginia. But before Judy could respond or do anything, the three men grabbed Amy and were off. So Judy actually did the right thing, and she reported this to authorities, who made composite sketches of the women, or the woman, and three men, which I'll show to you now. So of course our three men's male suspects all have sunglasses on. They're all three completely different looking people i think the guy on the left looks like i don't know every guy at like old man at like a pizza shop yeah you have a guy in a mullet (laughs) the The guy in the middle looks like the you got a creeper in the middle but i will say the sketch of amy could be amy just a few years later with her hair grown out i'll show you a little side by side i think the nose is very accurate she has a really tiny nose yeah i feel like it could be her too is like pointy jaw like yeah it's a very accurate picture so in november of 2005 ron and iva went on dr phil to talk about amy and they shared some troubling information they have been given they showed an email that was sent to their family website from a member of an online organization that identifies and tracks down sex trafficking victims from photos on the internet the email had two photos of a woman who looked like amy And also the hair matches the sketch from Barbados. Alleged Amy is in provocative poses and wearing revealing clothing. The name on the website, I think they called her Jazz or Jazz, where you could purchase women for the night if you get what I'm saying. What do you guys think of the picture? She doesn't really look into it. I wonder if you could see any of her tattoos. Like, I mean, you can't really see her belly button, but... All of the poses, the tattoos aren't visible or they're blurred out for obvious reasons for nudity and what year was this were these pictures released 2005 fully believe and the fbi that this is amy so i wonder if they do have photos of the tattoos Mm -hmm. so amy's mom iva thinks that amy was a victim of sex trafficking saying quote amy would have been a trophy amy would have been someone that i believe could have been picked out and fingered to move off of that ship she could have been held and hidden. She could have been possibly drugged and taken from that ship. So for that to happen, those people would have had to like be on the ship already or snuck on or what? Like I think the kind of like internet consensus is that Alistair, <laughs> the guy in the band, was kind of like a, he would pick women oh. out mm-hmm. like on board. Okay. And he, he was kind of like a little intermediary contact. I was just going to say that this all kind of points back because like if you think about it, when you get hired to work on a cruise ship like you're working even the band like you're working continuously like on that cruise ship you don't get off the next time so he obviously and he was the last person to be with her that makes a little bit of sense hmm allegedly held her on the ship got her off later or right got her off before she was even reported missing i feel like there's a good chance she was on that ship yeah well, and he was hiding her searching we do have a little bit of frustrating information because in 2010, a jawbone of Caucasian origin washed up on the beach in Aruba. So this was around the time everyone was searching for Natalie Holloway, which obviously was a very big case. 
but authorities compared the DNA from the jawbone to the DNA of Natalie Holloway, and it was not a match. But get this, they did not compare the DNA to any of the 10 other missing Caucasian women in the Caribbean. Why? Why? No idea. Why? Amy's family did say that the jawbone had wisdom teeth and Amy's had hers removed, but there's still nine other women it could belong to. Yeah. That's ridiculous and horrible. I couldn't find any more info on the jawbone, but allegedly it's just sitting in someone's office somewhere. So that's nice. So with no leads since 2005, Amy Bradley was declared legally dead on March 24th, 2010. She was 23 at the time of her disappearance and would now be 48. At the time of her disappearance, she had short brown hair and weighed 120 pounds. She was 5'6 with green eyes and had four tattoos at the time. And according to the nonprofit Disrupt Human Trafficking, 25 million people annually are exploited by traffickers. In a little perspective, that's the population of Australia. 25 million? 25 million every year. Wow. And the average duration for trafficking for adult victims is only around two years. Oh, that's so sad and gross. So the FBI still has an award of $25,000 put up for any information. And the Bradley family has put up an award for $250,000 for her return and $50,000 for her location. You can find the FBI poster for Amy, which includes some important information and some age progressed photos on our website. When is our consensus? Are we going sex trafficking theory? I'm kind of going sex trafficking. My theory is yellow had something to do with it, even Mm -hmm. though he was cleared by the police via polygraph, because back then they didn't really know that they do today, that polygraphs are not admissible in court. They don't often tell the truth. It's really hard to make sure that it's correct evidence, blah, blah, blah. So I feel like he probably picked out people and she was one of them. And she went missing. She met up with him, went missing. And the cruise ship didn't do what they were supposed to do by searching appropriately. And Mm -hmm. he probably stored her on the boat or got her off onto the island really quickly. But I highly doubt that she went overboard. But one thing that's weird is that because she got up super early that morning, way earlier than usual, especially for going out until what, like 3 a.m. Like this was before people had cell phones, really. And then also you're on a cruise ship. So I wonder if like they had like planned to meet up. I don't know, like a sunrise cigarette session. I don't know. I mean, the night before they were seen dancing together, right? Yeah. Yeah. I bet they planned to meet up and nothing to this day. There's nothing else on it to this day. Nope. Not since she's been declared legally dead in 2010. That's the last. Yeah, I agree with this. I agree with the sex trafficking theory. Y'all be safe on cruises. I mean, be safe in general. 24 million people a year is ridiculous. Yeah. You guys ready to hop aboard for our second case? Oh, God. Another cruise ship? <laughs> and another Royal Caribbean cruise. All right. Nobody go on Royal Caribbeans. Is that is yeah. that, that's still a thing, right? Yeah. But this time we're in the Mediterranean aboard the Brilliance of the Seas with George Smith and his new wife, Jennifer Hagel. They were going on their little two-week honeymoon cruise in the summer of 2005. So George was from a prominent family in Greenwich, Connecticut, and he was set to take over his father's liquor store business when he met Jennifer Hagel, a teacher. The two were said to be head over heels in love, and everyone who knew them said they were definitely each other's soulmates. The pair boarded the ship in Barcelona, Spain, and soon became friends with another couple couple on their honeymoon, Paul and Galena. 
So the beginning of the trip was going great. When on July 5th, 2005, while the ship was heading to Turkey, George and Jennifer decided to head to the onboard casino. Now, neither George nor Jennifer were big drinkers. According to their families, they rarely drank because they both were pretty lightweight. But this night, the two appeared to be heavily intoxicated. The other couple, Paul and Galena, even tried to convince George and Jennifer to go back to their rooms. That's how drunk they got. Instead, George and Jennifer made their way to the disco, which was closing at 3.30 a.m. They were invited by some newly made friends, a 20-year-old Josh Askin and his three friends, Greg Rosenberg, Zach Rosenberg, and Rusty Kaufman. And I'm just going to call them the frat boys. At 7.30 a.m., as the ship arrived in the port in Turkey, a young girl, which I'm sure this is traumatizing, went out on her balcony to take a picture of the sights, and she saw a giant blood stain on the cover of a lifeboat below. The young girl told her parents who called the ship's security. Unlike in Amy's case, the crew put the ship into lockdown immediately and went to the bloodstain. I guess because there was a bloodstain, they kind of had to. Yeah. Like this there time, was actual evidence. They followed the bloodstain up the 21-foot side of the ship right to the Smith's room. After knocking on the door for a bit with no answer, security entered the room to find no one inside. They did take some pictures of the room, which... I mean, it's a little messy, but I don't think it's anything out of the ordinary for being on a cruise for like a week at this point. It doesn't look like there was a fight or anything. No, it's just clothes around, trash, normal. But I have a question. They said they followed the blood stain all the way up the boat, like side. Mm -hmm. So it was like on the side of the boat too? Yeah, like wherever the blood came from kind of. It dripped down. Slid down. Yeah. So that automatically like no fall happened. Because there, there wouldn't no, be blood on the way down. No jump. Yeah. There's yeah. bleeding before the person left the balcony. Interesting. Or as they were leaving. Like the they balcony. were just like dropped down. Like you were saying they're already dead and they're dropped down the balcony. Yeah. Because I always think if you were to jump off the balcony, there wouldn't be any blood on directly straight down from the balcony. Yeah. Also, know? like or... that was a, it was more like a blood smudge. It wasn't like, I feel like if you did fall or like were pushed, you be a splatter and that was not splatter at all or they were killed on the balcony and the blood drained on the side you know like drained off the side of the boat and went and hit the bottom i don't know though it looked like a person like it looked like a silhouette of a person though maybe the person like kind kind of of landed there and slid off so they did find that one of the balcony chairs was pushed to the rail and there was a small spot of blood on the bed sheets when i first saw this picture of the little blood stain i thought it looked like a nosebleed like, it's two, like, nostril-shaped little blood marks. It's not that big, either. No, they're pretty small. But I did read online, on the forums, of course, some people think it's from where, like, a watch, like, pinched the skin. Apparently, it also makes that mark. So it could be either or. It's not big enough to, like, be very concerning, to be honest. No. Like, that could have even been a razor cut, you know? The crew did eventually track down Jennifer and found... Okay, do you guys want to guess where Jennifer was? Oh, wait, I totally forgot. His wife wasn't even in the room. No. Okay, she was either with the frat boys or she was with the two the couple that they met the night before. Or was she in the casino? She was in the spa getting a massage. I'm sorry. What? She was in the middle of her pre-scheduled couple's massage. Without, without her husband. Mm-hmm. Did she say she just couldn't find him? She said that she didn't remember anything from the night before. She woke up at eight and went straight to the spa. She hadn't seen George since they were in the disco. She just assumed he fell asleep somewhere. 
and she was not going to miss her massage appointment. And that's normal. I guess. She just was like, screw my husband. I'm not going to try to go find him. I need to go get this massage. Yeah, I guess she assumed that he was with that other couple they befriended, Paul and Galena. Yeah, but Um, still, that's weird. Maybe she went to the massage thinking he was going to be there. So security did go talk to the other couple, Paul and Galena, and they said they hadn't seen George since the casino when he left for the disco with the frat boys. So at this point, the ship's security realized they needed some backup, so they called in the Turkish police and the United States consulate. So the Turkish police started questioning the frat boys that George was hanging out with that night, and you can actually watch all of the questionings because one of the boy's dad, Josh Askin's dad, videotaped the entire thing and put it online. Here's the gist of the story. All four of the boys were questioned together, which isn't a good move to start with, you can kind of see from the screenshot, just like in the lobby of the cruise ship. Like that doesn't look formal at all. Just hanging out. The frat boy said while in the casino, the manager of the casino, Lloyd, walked up to Jennifer and put his arm around her. And afterwards, they all decided to go to the disco before it closed. While at the disco, George and Jennifer got into an argument, which ended up with Jennifer kicking George in the groin and telling him to leave. Jennifer stayed a little bit longer, but ended up leaving with the manager, Lloyd. The frat boys decided to go back to their room and they found George passed out in a chair and took him up to his room because that's the nice thing to do. George apparently panicked because Jennifer wasn't in the room and wanted to go look for her. They said the group had a little bit of a discussion about whether or not to go look for her, but they ultimately decided to. After looking around for a bit with no success, the frat boys took George's shoes off and put him to bed. Then went straight to their room and ordered quote, a shit ton of room service. I think it's funny when you watch these videos, all they really talk about is the food and they like list all the things they ordered. Yeah, very meticulous. I also, I'll go ahead and say, I don't believe their story of the wife like leaving her husband, kicking him in the groin and like going with the manager somewhere because everybody at the beginning of the story, you said everybody said they were like a dream couple, you know? So like, I don't- This is their honeymoon. I don't believe that. Also, if I'm really upset at my husband, the groin is the last place I'd probably kick him, to be honest. I'd I'd probably throw a punch before I kicked the groin. So after this talk with the frat boys, the Turkish police uh, then moved on in their investigation and discovered that the passengers in the neighboring suite actually called in a noise complaint from George's cabin that morning. So the man who called in about the noise complaint was actually a police deputy. So he had all the details memorized, ready to go. He said around 4 a.m. he heard what he described as a drinking game that turned into an argument, estimating there were three to four people in the room that then moved to the balcony. He specifically heard one man say goodnight repeatedly, and then there was silence. At this point, the deputy called security. Then the noise started again. Deputy heard cabinets opening and shutting and what sounded like furniture moving before some more silence. The last noise he heard from the room was what he described as a horrifying thud. The deputy ended up opening his door. As he opened his door, he saw the backs of three men walking out of the room and down the hallway. So important to note, the ship did not have any cameras in the like hallways. Security did end up showing up at the cabin um, sometime between 4.20 and 4.30 a.m. So this is like 30 minutes after the initial call. They didn't hear anything. They knocked on the door. No one answered. So they just left. Oh, that's good job. Good job, security. 10 out of 10. So with this information in hand, the Turkish police decided to circle back to Jennifer. 
She's suspect number one at this point. They found out Jennifer actually never left the disco with the casino manager, Lloyd, Mm. um, because security footage shows Jennifer leaving the disco at 3.25 a.m. And at the same time, Lloyd was entering his girlfriend's cabin on the opposite end of the ship. Footage also showed crew helping an intoxicated Jennifer out of the disco to the elevator and dropping her off on the ninth floor. But Jennifer turned in the wrong direction of her room. At 4.30 a.m., security found Jennifer passed out in a hallway put her in a wheelchair, and wheeled her back to her room. Security said no one else was in the room when they dropped her off. I'm sorry. <laughs> she, I'm sorry. She was wheelchaired back to her room because she was drunk. I saw it in the hallway. That's really yeah. good. That's really good. And it, this is like around the same time that security showed up at their cabin. So I wonder if it was like the same ones that went to the cabin. Yeah. There's noises. No one there. They find Jennifer, then they take her back to the same cabin and didn't think anything of it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. But they're not really drinkers, so are they think are we just thinking she's just like a lightweight or I still I still just, don't think it was Jennifer. I still think it's I think the frat boys had something to do with it. I think she yeah. just got drunk. Seems to be theory either they had a little too much because they weren't big drinkers, you know, decided to let loose. Or mm-hmm. maybe they maybe they were drugged. We'll see. I was about to say that, yeah. That happens we'll a lot. So ultimately, the Turkish police and the Royal Caribbean crews came to a final decision as to what happened and writing in their official report, which is like two sentences long. Mm. Um, after, quote, after the investigations, we assumed he was sitting on the rail of his balcony cabin, probably lost his balance and fell overboard, probably under the influence of alcohol, end quote. Doesn't make sense. A lot of probabilities in, for an official report, but we'll move on. Jennifer was basically dropped off in Turkey with no way home. She had to call back home to her parents in in America and have some money wired over so she could get a flight. Meanwhile, the crews kept their regular course, but for only one more day before something else went down with the frat boys. Mm -hmm. So this is now two days after George apparently went overboard. An 18-year-old girl reported to security that she had been sexually assaulted and that it was filmed by none other than the frat boys. That's so the girl. boys and their families were brought down to the lawyer's office. Apparently, cruise ships have lawyers on board. And of course, Josh's dad filmed this entire thing, and it is online. Okay, this dude's dad. Okay. I mean... I don't know why he was filming all I this. I feel like he's not helping, though. No. It got heated. I mean, it was like below deck times 10. The lawyer and security said that the FBI gave clear instructions and that the entire party would be kicked off the ship once they docked in Italy. And in the meantime, they were to be locked down in their rooms and not to leave under any circumstances. But little fun fact at this point, no one had called the FBI. So they kind of just like pushed the blame off like, oh, the FBI told us to do this. FBI had no idea about any of this or about George. So once the ship docked in Naples and the party was thrown off, the Naples police said the case wasn't in their jurisdiction and refused to investigate. So at this point, no one was ever charged in the sexual assault of this girl. So I don't know who called in the FBI, but they did eventually enter the investigation at this point, And they do have the film of this. Of course. Of course they do. <laughs> yeah. Let me guess. Have- his dad filmed it. Yeah. <laughs> so while they're reviewing this footage... Um, they found a little bit more. Apparently, one of the boys had filmed their little group at lunch a few hours after George had been reported missing, and they were all mocking George and making fun of his disappearance. 
I mean, Why? they're what's, just what's up with these people recording stuff? Like red flags. I mean, yeah. it's it's like very obvious red flags. And I assume that these frat boys too, because I don't think we know, but I assume they they kind of all look the same age as the couple, you know, like mm-hmm. but if not they're, a little bit younger. I think they're early twenties. Right. So I mean, yeah. it's yeah, they're a group of fratty boys. At one point in the videos, Rusty said something about George parachuting off the balcony. And Greg stood up and threw up gang signs and said, quote, I told you I was gangster. So after some more questioning, the FBI basically dropped the frat boys as persons of interest and cleared them. And this is all because of their alibi in the room service, which apparently was backed up by a phone call made from one of their rooms at 4.13 a.m. that morning. Yeah, but that's so easy to do. And remember also that the next door neighbor police officer guy said he only saw three people. There was four of them. Oh, look at this. The kitchen system shows no record of any room service ever being ordered or delivered to that room. And no one in the kitchen remembered anyone ordering that much food at four in the morning. Okay, so then it wasn't real. They could have I feel just like a call- lot of times people do that when they're lying, like over explain themselves and right. You well, know, yeah, when they yeah, were talking we, about all the detail. And the they go into food, too much like, detail. Yeah. You know, we order this sandwich and this food and blah, blah. And they could have easily... It just showed that there was a call on the phone. They could have just called a random number. Even more infuriating, the FBI noticed that the ship did have cameras, like on the outside, pointing right at George's balcony. But for whatever reason, they never got access to it. What? So there's literally, there's footage of what happened, but they never were able to access it. Yeah. And I couldn't find out details if like Royal Caribbean just like never turned it over or if it like automatically, you know, deleted after a certain amount of time or... You know what? Royal Caribbean might be on my shit list. There is a whole website for cruise ship disappearances. And you can filter it by cruise lines. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. Which is Royal Caribbean the highest? Yep. Oh man. Okay, you guys, look. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Get on a Disney cruise. So after three of the four boys and Jennifer passed a polygraph, George's family hired an attorney, Mike Jones, to investigate. He was actually the one to discover that the kitchen had no records of the large room service order because the FBI never looked into that. And he also started taking depositions and polygraphs of the frat boys himself. So in the reports I found, it was Greg Rosenberg whose polygraph came back as inconclusive. Mike did say this that this could possibly be because he is diagnosed as ADHD, which I guess skews the results of it. Once again, you guys polygraphs don't matter they don't matter but fun fact greg was in prison oh at the time of this polygraph for um trafficking oxycodone so he was a gangster so he was a little gangster he was he was a drug trafficker yeah i mean he didn't do it he didn't do it right so he got caught it has now been almost 18 years since george was last seen alive really the last tidbit we have so I want to go into some possible theories and motives. I'm sure you guys are thinking frat boys might be involved. So I wanted to go into some possible theories. Why are they just trying to, you know, prove themselves as, you know, up and coming gangsters? Apparently, George always wore an expensive watch, which some people online have said could be a motive. You know, again, pointing back to that little blood stain that they think was like from the watch snapping off on his wrist. Another point I kept seeing was that it was possible that George and Jennifer were drugged that night. People kind of 
point to Jennifer. Do you guys think Jennifer's involved? Okay. You want to hear my theory? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm ready. Okay. Well, that is not a good pick. Well, it's a great picture of her, but that makes her look a little suspicious. But going back to my theory, I 100% think it was the frat guys. Now that we know one of them was a trafficker of um, illegal substances, I believe that they probably drugged the couple. That's why mm-hmm. they were so intoxicated to the point where she was passing out in hallways. They drugged the couple. They brought him back to his hotel room, potentially to rob him for some reason. They killed him in an argument uh, or they beat him up to the point on the balcony where there was blood dripping down from the balcony. And then he either fell over or once he fell over and was on the ground, they threw him overboard or they just threw him overboard because that amount of blood, if it, if he had been laying there, it, I feel like there would have been a big pool. So mm-hmm. I feel like it dripped from the balcony. They threw him overboard or discarded of his body somehow, but played it like they covered it up because there was only three guys leaving the room, not four. And the fourth one was making the call to order food, but didn't really do anything. Yeah. What do you think, Holly? Okay. <clears throat> so I think that, that they were planning on like drugging and raping her. And I feel like it's possible that he might have like walked in on something or like saw something was up, got into a fight with them and they were not able to like finish what they started with her. And that's why we see the second girl later on claiming that they raped her. I feel like she could have been raped though. Like, I feel like there's a good chance it's because it was, it was videotaped. So like the rape happened. You think I'm saying like, Oh, well, she wouldn't have known if she was so drugged, you know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I feel like there was an altercation like because of that with the husband, you know, like he walked in on something or like thought something was up and that's why you hear like the, I do have some tea on Jennifer. Uh Oh, let me hear it. Yes. Jennifer with George's parents decided to sue um, Royal Caribbean for wrongful death. Okay. But, but behind George's parents back, Jennifer went ahead and settled for an undisclosed amount and part of the settlement agreement Royal Caribbean was allowed to destroy all records and evidence. Wait a minute. My story might change. She might be involved. That's really sketchy, Jennifer. That's real sketch. Was that like her term of the agreement or the the cruise ships? I think it was part of their terms. Like, well, okay, we'll pay you this much, but we get to destroy all the money. And she had the money. Like, the parents didn't get any money. No. And so they tried to go sue Mm -hmm. Royal Caribbean after, but they had no evidence of anything because Royal Caribbean had destroyed all the records. I wonder if it's the thing where Royal Caribbean doesn't want people to see that they did a shitty investigation or if she's wanting to hide evidence of. I think, well, I think both. I think both, but I think it's real shit that she went behind his parents and took the money like that Mm -hmm. makes it sketchy to me that makes me think that maybe she was involved some people online theorize that she set george up and that's why she didn't go back to the room that night and she just went back to the spa in the morning that also could be a thing a honeymoon something's not right and so kylie do we have any closure well a little bit so jennifer no longer speaks to her i guess now ex-in-law she's since remarried the FBI still has the videotapes from the frat boys. We have one little last bit of tea. Our gangster, Greg Rosenberg, was murdered. What? In 2019. That's him on the picture? That's a he big difference. Up, he grew up yeah. a little bit. He yeah, he grew up. 
And he was murdered outside of prison? Yes. So this is in Davie, mm. Florida. Greg oh. was ambushed while sitting in his car in his driveway with an unknown amount of assailants shot him multiple times and fled. There was nothing stolen. The shooters never exited their car. Nothing. And the police believe it was a hit. Yeah. It Well, I mean, if he's a gangster, um, it probably was a hit. Also, I just want to do a shout out to Davie, Florida. I have been there with some friends at a rodeo. Um, and I have friends that live there. So shout out to Davie and all the listeners. Shout out to the shooters and Davie. Wow. Uh, what a story. George's family yeah. and their private investigator, Mike Jones, are still investigating. And the case is still open. The family is offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. And they ask that anyone with information email georgesmithtipline at gmail.com. And that's all I have for you guys today. Wow. Two big stories. Two big ends. I'm going to say the first one was human trafficking. And then the second Mm -hmm. one potentially could have been a setup between Jennifer and the frat guys. But I think ultimately the frat guys did the dirty killing. They basically admitted it on the recording. And with that, this was Over My Dead Pod. If you enjoyed this week's episode, be sure to stay tuned for a new episode next week. Additional information about the cases we talk about, including photos, can be found on our website, OverMyDeadPod.com, where you can also submit cases you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. All right, ladies, you guys want to go ahead and jump into our overtime this week? Hell yeah. I can go ahead and start first. So I actually, before I have my story, I have a little announcement for everyone that is listening. Um, For those who may not know already, I am pregnant. Baby pod. Yay. There's going to be a baby on the pod. So I'm currently, (laughs) let's see, today... We are recording today in the middle of May, um, and I am almost done with my first trimester, fortunately. So it has been one hell of a journey, and I am looking forward to no longer being sick and actually enjoying everything. But we're going to have a little December baby, you guys. It's a Christmas miracle. Yay. It's a Christmas miracle. So anyways, to jump into overtime now, I'll go ahead and start with you guys. So we have a little bit of an update um, on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. For everyone who doesn't know, in May of 2005, Natalie Holloway was on a high school graduation trip to Aruba in the Caribbean. She was 18 years old. And on that trip with other schoolmates, she disappeared. To date, they never found any, they never found her. There has been evidence here and there, and multiple people have been in connect with the disappearance of her, but nobody has ever been charged. Well, we got an update recently that one of the suspects, Jordan Joran Vandersloot, has been extradited to the United States on behalf of the disappearance of Natalie. So for those who don't know, Joran Vandersloot, sorry, he is a Dutch man and he's actually a convicted, he's a convicted murderer as well. So Joran in Peru of 2010 killed a woman named Stephanie Flores Ramirez and went to prison for it. But in 2005, he was known as the main suspect in Natalie's disappearance because he was in Aruba when this happened. And if I remember correctly, ladies, just call me out if you think something different. But when he was first interviewed for Natalie's disappearance, he said, no, had nothing to do with it. Never seen her before but then later came back, changed a story and said he had taken her from 
a nightclub. They were hanging out and he was driving her back to her hotel. And on the way back to her hotel, he dropped her off like right by the hotel and a security guard picked her up and walked her back to the hotel. And that's the only and last time he ever saw her. So his story had changed a few times. That last story is all that we know. Now, if you know the story at all, you probably think that Joran Vandersloot is the murderer. I mean, from mm-hmm. most of the evidence, it kind of leads directly to him. So for him to be extradited is a huge deal. That means there's hopefully, well, that means there is evidence in some type of manner for them to be able to get him out of prison for his 2010 murder in Peru to be able to extradite him to the U.S. Now, he's from the Netherlands. He has not been living in the Netherlands since Natalie's disappearance, which to me is a red flag, but to each their own. Hopefully, we'll find out some more stuff in the future, but that's what I've got right now. So we'll keep an eye out for it and keep you guys updated. But the Natalie Holloway case is a really, really big one. If you don't know it, there's tons of documentaries Um, We most likely will never cover it on this podcast because of how popular it is. So there's tons of stories for you to read out there, but it's a really good one and also really, really sad. So hopefully we get some news, but that is my part for overtime. And he can burn in hell. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Screw you, Jordan. I have a good little update. So we all know about the doomsday mom, Lori Vallow. Yes. Who has a suspicious amount of deaths tied to her. And if you don't remember, she's the, you know, doomsday cult lady who, you know, married a pastor after her ex-husband mysteriously died and his wife mysteriously died. And then they got married and then her two children were missing and she didn't really care to look for them. She was just convicted of two counts of first degree murder for the slayings of her seven-year-old son, JJ, and 16-year-old Tylee, and also conspiracy to commit first degree murder of husband's ex-wife tammy daybell i think there's some more murder charges that could be brought mm-hmm. but i'm glad though she was finally convicted because it took years just to find this woman she was on the run she was in hawaii for a bit it was weird yeah because i remember that they couldn't find her and so that was like a really big part of it too is that she just like left no and i saw this one video of them they subpoenaed her to turn over her children so you know the court can make sure her children are alive and she was just lounging at the pool in Hawaii while her children were missing. But obviously we know now why she was doing that. But yeah, because she killed she, her children. Yeah, may she burn in hell also. Okay, yes. Holly. Okay, well, I have a case from Little Rock, actually. Johnny Howard of Stuttgart, which is close to Little Rock, was reported missing to the Arkansas County Sheriff's Office on May 4th. And later that day, Authorities found his body in a burned vehicle on the east side of Stuttgart, or I'm sorry, on Hartseed Road east of Stuttgart. The body was sent to the state crime lab where they found that it was the 18-year-old missing teenager. So he's a high school student and body was found the same day, burned in a Ford F-250 on the side of a road. There is a, there is a reward for any information leading to any arrests of three thousand eight hundred dollars that's it they that's don't it doesn't really yeah it doesn't really sound like they have any leads because i don't know it just doesn't from the way that the news articles sound but that oh, is my update so i'm gonna keep was? following that 18 oh he was a baby yeah he was a kid he was in high school wow and it looks like he played sports and was just 
I mean, he's a not like a nice looking kid and looks like he was really involved. There's a lot of teachers that have been posting about him and like other students. So and it's pretty recent. It was in, um, it was on May 4th that his body was found. Wow. What was his Very name sad. again? Uh, Johnny Howard. Wow. That's really sad. I didn't, the fact that he was so young too. Yeah. And very, very burn odd. alive in a truck is just, I hope, I hope for his family and everything, he was potentially not alive when his truck went up in flames. Yeah. Cause that is just a horrific, they haven't, horrific. They haven't released any information about like his cause of death. So I don't know if he was alive prior to that or not, but keep a lookout on that case. Obviously something criminal happened, was, but yeah. You know, yeah. It wasn't like a wreck or anything. It was definitely foul play involved, but it doesn't look like there's anything that police know. And if they do, they're not releasing it right now. So there you go. I just, I just read something too, that says as soon as he was reported missing, it was under two hours after then they found his body. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, to me, it sounds like they're, they may have known something was mm-hmm. going on because they reported him missing the same day that the last time they saw him, like they didn't wait any amount of time and they said he was last seen possibly getting into a truck so i don't it know like it seems like activity. maybe oh man sounds like they kind of knew something might have been conspiring so anyways well, whoever potentially killed him can burn in hell burn in hell burn in hell yep we have quite we have quite the collection of people going to hell today yes i mean almost every podcast i would say but yes especially today. Yeah. Yep. we'll sign off for today so uh this is over my dead pod This is Kate Carter, Kylie Colwell, and Holly Spear. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.